Welcome to episode 43 of Now We're Talking. I'm Rob Danish from the University of Waterloo, and I'm here again today with a couple of my students, Vlad and Carly. And uh, it seems that my students are relatively obsessed with uh, storytelling because we're going to talk about it again today. It is a powerful communication device, and they never tire of talking about it. Even though I just had a class where the students also really wanted to talk about it and but could not tell a story for their lives not not Vlad and not Carly there were these were other students but um, they really struggled with the idea uh, or not the idea but with the practice of it anyway welcome Carly welcome Vlad um, so we're also talking about persuasion tactics still so communication as a form of persuasion and story is quite essential to that process so what do you guys want to tell us about storytelling today hello all right so Essentially, the value of storytelling for leaders is that they can help advance value claims, uh, motivate and inspire action, and bring a whole people together. In essence, it's helping them build a group identity, and that recognizing storytelling is an unfolding and ongoing process of engaging with others is important in forming that identity. Um, some of the ways you can ensure you're telling a good story is choosing stories in which the audience can identify with both the plot and the characters, dramatizing challenge and choice, and highlighting the values and emotion rather than the facts. Um, and you should be using stories to connect your audience through intrigue and shared values. So this year, Vlad and I had a class together, um, and it was a customer experience design course. Um, and something that was really great is that the professor in that course always used story to create a narrative about our class and all the students in our class that helped us see the class as a positive thing that we were all in together as opposed to a negative thing. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit more about that, and then I'll contrast it to another class I took where the prof didn't quite have the same approach. So <laughs> I can guess which one you liked better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so during midterm season, kind of end of the semester, when it gets really uh, heavy for students, a lot of the time, not a lot of students will show up to class. And so the prof that I liked, the prof that really fostered a sense of community in the class, her response to students not coming up to class would be, Oh, it's such a busy time of year. I understand the flu is going around. Thank you, everyone who came out tonight. And we're going to spend so much time together learning some really cool things. And we'll try to wrap up early tonight so everyone can get home and get a little extra sleep. Um, and so she'd always kind of make it like this reward for coming to class. Like, thank you, and you're helping build something together. Uh, one time we did uh, a project where we all had to use post-it notes to map a customer journey. And she would say, oh, the classroom has never looked so beautiful. You guys are doing such a great job. And then this other professor I had, um, her response when people wouldn't show up to class would be, tell your friends they better come to class next Monday if they want to get a mark for their paper. Maybe, some, maybe if some of you will actually come to class this time. And so she was always kind of articulating this us versus her um, and lumping all the students together as if we were allied uh, and finding her destruction. And so it was kind of strange because similar situations had happened, but there was very different responses from both professors. So that's that's also an illustration of what we call in leadership the command and control forms of leadership, or where that use the carrot and the stick, like do this or this other consequence, versus um, inspire, connect and inspire leaders who try to make a social relationship with the people they're trying to lead, and then inspire them to future or further action. So uh, those are good examples of those two differences in leadership. So another thing uh, Vlad and I were kind of looking at is 
parenting as leadership and the overlap between the two. Uh, and they've shown that a lot of storytelling in early childhood is really important for children to develop their own self-concept. So the stories parents will tell their children helps them figure out who they are, how they fit into their family, how they're situated within their culture. Uh, and so Vlad and I can talk to you about a couple of our personal stories for oh, childhood. Yeah, are, I want to hear these. <laughs> so do your parents. They want to hear them too. Um, so something that my mom would always tell me when I was a kid, and she'd she say, you're really good at making friends, Carly. I really like seeing how you make friends. And the story that they'd always tell me, especially my grandma, my grandma loves this story. I saw her last weekend and she brought it up again. Is when my brother was being born and my grandmother and I were in the waiting room of the hospital. Um, my grandmother was sitting alone and I was playing with some toys. And then I kind of disappeared for a moment. When I came back, I said, oh, grandma, like I found a friend for you. Don't worry, you don't have to sit alone. And I went and introduced her to another couple, a couple seats down, and I tried to start a conversation between the two of them. So I like to tell that one. And the other big one, as far as making friends, was when we first moved to uh, our house in Aurora, it was during the summertime. So none of the students or none of the kids are really there. Everyone's on summer vacations. Um, and I went to the park with my dad and there was no other kids. And so I made friends with the dog and I told him, I was like, mom, don't worry. I finally made a friend here. It's going to be okay. Uh, so my dad likes to make fun of me for that one. And these stories I would assume get repeated over time. So it's not like they get told once. They get told once and then they told over and over and over again. So the pattern of the story becomes the value, it becomes real as the value that's being advanced. Exactly. So. And I know whenever I'd like, I, I switched schools in grade four because we moved. And my mom would tell me those stories when I was worried about my first day of school. So they're kind of like brought up in drink challenges. Yeah, my mom, my mom always told me that um, back when I was little, I used to be very clean. I used to organize my toys a lot. And that kind of like shapes the way I think of myself now. So I know that somewhere inside me and somewhere my identity is I'm a very organized person. And, and that kind of shapes me towards who I am right now. I try to be that organized person that I once was before, according to my mom. Yeah, and actually, if anyone's read the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, he talks about how uh, kids born in the first couple months of the year are more inclined to be athletes um, and excel in those domains, and it's because early in childhood, people are telling them, oh, you're really good at this, you're doing a really good job, and so they have all these kind of narratives in their lives that shape them, and so whether they can view themselves as athletes, athletes and are more willing to um, work hard to make that happen. So, yeah, I guess another time narrative leadership has been interest, an interesting part of my team experiences. We're at my part-time jobs. I worked at a pharmacy, uh, and we were a really small pharmacy, and so it was all really uh, older patients, and not a lot of people came to our pharmacy, but the people that had, did come had been there for 30 years. Um, and the narrative around that was always like, us versus Shoppers Drug Mart. And so there was kind of like this alliance between all the people that worked there and then all of the customers because we were trying to like beat out Shoppers Drug Mart. Of course, that wasn't necessarily the reality, <laughs> but it was uh, definitely like a, a, a guiding narrative for that store. Uh, Vlad and I also kind of look, talked about how mission and vision are a form of narrative leadership within organizations. And so having those mission and vision statements is really helpful in guiding how people should act and situating them within that within that company. So, and you have to combine the mission and vision statement with what you just said before about your grandmother and, and your family upbringing, right? That whatever is in the mission or vision statement of an organization is a narrative that needs to be repeated or made real or 
remind the employees need to be reminded of it again through various communicative devices so that it, it brings the values of the mission statement to life. So it's one thing to have a mission statement and then ignore it and never talk about it, never narrate it, never bring it into being. It's another thing to have the mission statement organize a narrative and then constantly refer back to or, or pick up parts of or reiterate that narrative. Yeah, so, and, and that kind of ties in with uh, my section that I'm going to be talking about, uh, the values before facts. Um, the mission is the value um, of, of the company. Um, so I'll, I'll be talking about the values before facts. So this means that a good leader structures the messages or stories to place value claims and answer why questions ahead of, ahead of uh, validity claims or answer to what and how questions. Um, so again, that similar example um, happens in the in the startup world, um, where uh, and people always say ideas are worthless. It's the execution that's important. So when it comes to pitching ideas to investors, um, I see many people pitch their ideas without underlining the why. Uh, many people think they have a good idea, but are not sure what the problem they are trying to solve. Uh, so when we pitch our ideas to investors, we are trying to persuade the investors to in, into investing in our business. Um, and that same concept of values before fact applies. We, we have this uh, identity identify why we're trying to solve a certain problem um, and explain why it is important why, why it is an important problem. And only after we apply the facts, um, what will be done about it and how it will function. Um, so an example, the first time I ever pitched, I started talking about uh, what I'm working on and how it will function. But I never talked about the reasoning of why I'm working on my business idea or I never talked about why I'm trying to solve this issue. Only after watching many other pitches, I realized that uh, ones that told stories of the why and the core values and beliefs um, are um, of those ideas were the ones who have successfully received the investments. Um, so in general, we have to answer the why questions before we get to the facts of what is going to be done about it and how it will be solved. Um, another example, and this was more of a personal example, and this kind of relates to conflict. Um, so when me and my ex, uh, when we had arguments, it was often us throwing around random facts about what happened. Uh, but we never really got to understand each other's perspectives until the end of the fight. It was when we opened up to our feelings and explained the reasoning behind our actions. That's when we really had an effect on the other person. And that's when we began to realize that if we started with the reasoning, the values before we got around to the facts, uh, each one of us could understand the uh, like we could avoid the f fights in general um, just because we, we started with the values. Uh, so when we want to inspire others or have a certain effect on, on the person, we have to start our communication practices with values by answering questions. Only then we can proceed with facts in these cases, our behavior and the way we acted uh, by answering what and how questions. So the, the one thing to remember about uh, value, so communicative messages that are oriented around values, they affect the limbic system of the brain. And, and uh, that's one of the reasons that they're so powerful. So. Uh, they are emotionally affective messages. And as emotionally affective messages, they have this kind of powerful ability to orient people's thinking. So what, what Vlad was describing in terms of arguing about facts, um, if you started with a message about values, it would reorient the person's thinking about facts and they wouldn't, people might not be as prone to or likely to engage in some sort of combative argumentative disagreement over facts if they were clear about values because the values would kind of sync up emotionally those those two people that might be in, in conflict. So 
remember that the that you know the question that I'm always asking in communication is what effect have I had uh, for leaders that they have to realize that the effects they produce uh, uh, well, when you produce an effect on another person you produce a different kind of effect based on whether or not the message is targeted at the limbic system or at the prefrontal cortex or different cognitive parts of the other human being. So when you have a message that affects the limbic system, it has a kind of different kind of different power than um, a message that affects another part of the body or, or brain. Yeah. Um, so this next example, a lot of us can actually relate to. Um, so for some reason, uh, it was always difficult to get your parents to buy um, some brand new toy that every kid had in school. Um, so once again, when we we're kids, we sometimes fail, fail to realize that it's the values that inspire someone to act versus simply just facts. So when I was younger, I remember being um, at Mastermind Toys, and I really wanted this uh, Meccano set uh, that my friends always had. Um, and for those who don't already know, Meccano is kind of like a Lego set, but it consists of like metal strips and plates that you can assemble together uh, with nuts and bolts into different contraptions. Uh, so well, when I it came to asking my parents for it, of course, the answer was no. Um, and I've, of course, I thought if I find a good enough reason for it, only then maybe I can convince them to get it for me. And I thought to myself, what else can I use this Meccano set uh, for? And I remember that I had a science project coming up um, and we had to build a robot that used hydraulics. And as soon as I explained to my parents that I can potentially use this Meccano set for uh, school benefits, I was able to convince them to buy that set for me. Um, and only then I remember walking out of Mastermind Toys with that brand new $200 Meccano set. Um, so when we're able to articulate our intentions and kind of like resonate with our audience and their values, and for example, for my parents, it was this, the schooling part that it was important for school, um, only then we can use facts that will get us what we want. So let's try and link these two things up. Uh, why does storytelling go hand in hand with value claims? Do either of you want to take a shot at that or do you want me to... <laughs> Um, I think when you're storytelling, um, you want to kind of uh, have an emotional effect on someone, um, and you can do that with values by by using um, by talking about something that resonates with the audience, um, and that's something that they can connect with. Okay, that, so that's basically right. I want to talk about that in a little more detail, though. So. The, the reason story is so effective as a leadership technique is because a narrative has either an implied, an in implicit or explicit value claim attached to it. Um, so stories are not just recountings. They're not just, um, so in Carly's original story about her being good at making friends and these examples of her making friends, we're, we're not just re neutrally recounting a moment where she made a friend. The implication behind the story is that being good at, ma at making friends is a good thing. There's a value claim implied in the narrative itself. Um, so all narratives have these implied, sometimes explicit, value claims attached to them that come from or emerge from the structure of the narrative itself. So and in fact, narrative is one of the best ways of making or um, delivering value claims, it's really hard and can be really awkward to, some, to say sometimes, well, this is my value claim. <laughs> I believe in X because you'd be delivering it as a kind of rational argument and that's not really the structure that makes most sense for a value claim. Um, so normally storytelling is the primary mode of articulating a value claim. Um, and then that's why also both story and both value claims have this kind of profound effect on audiences because they target this the limbic system of the body. They make us feel certain things powerfully. Um, 
Okay, so great. Any last words or any kind of summarizing ideas here? Um, I think you uh, covered Carly's looking at a blank page. <laughs> I have a couple more. She has a blank page, so. Uh, uh, okay, so that's great. So uh, we need to remember that leadership requires making value claims on audiences and usually making value claims through, uh, through narrative or storytelling practices. So thanks, Carly. Thanks, Vlad. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. I'll be back. I'll be on my own for the next few episodes without, uh, without help. So thanks, everyone.